This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you by BMO Harris Bank. Hello and welcome to Dana Being Dana. I'm Dana Michelle and I'm thrilled you're with us. My show is all about different aspects of the human connection, things that bring us together and living life intentionally. On Memorial Day 2020, the world watched in horror as George Floyd died under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. Our intolerance for racism, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement, was recognized on a global scale as people protested and companies spoke out, voicing their commitment to see effective change in areas of racial and social injustice. Joining me today are friends of mine who have been very active in this space, both as pastors and community leaders. We've got Pastor Chris Harris, Reverend Dr. Valerie Parker, and Pastor David Swanson. Thank you all so much for joining me. The killing of a black person at the hands of police is nothing new. There were those who died before the death of George Floyd and more black people have died since May of 2020. What is it that made the death of George Floyd different? For the first time, I saw the world respond to something that happened to black people. Hmm. For the first time we saw white people who would normally stay quiet, make a lot of noise and be vocal and present. Uh, last but not least, for the first time, I saw people who would have courage to speak truth to power and say the system is racist. And it, it was exciting to see that happen. All ages, all races, and many, many countries around the world. So the death of one man literally shook the world. And now we have a wonderful opportunity, if compassion fatigue does not set in, to literally shift the paradigm of many people's thinking. It snatched away everybody's ability to say, I don't know. And it was exciting. Uh, I agree with Pastor Chris. Um, I think the other thing is, uh, it, it was right for that type of uh, reaction. Uh, when uh, back in Charlottesville, uh, the, the chant, Jews will not replace us. All of the, uh, when our beloved immigrant children were being caged, uh, the world was beginning to turn its attention to what is going on in America. And finally, uh, the final culmination of the death of an innocent man right before us, I think was just as Pastor Chris said, enough. It was just too much. But I would also add, I saw the boldness of young people that I think 16 or 17 year old young lady who stood in the face of injustice she stood in the face of an officer who was literally killing George Floyd at the moment she was recording and had the courage to record it. I'm seeing the boldness of young people coming forth in a way that uh, I just haven't seen in a while. And that to me is reassuring. I, I think a couple of things. One, I think there was more discourse about the impact of racial trauma that we, we heard. And that was not new to everybody, but I think on a larger scale, we were hearing people process and wrestle with the impact that uh, the, the, the publicizing of these uh, instances of brutality, the impact that that, that has on individuals and, and communities. And I think that's something we're still wrestling with. We, mm -hmm. we need to see these videos because otherwise uh, those in power continue to say that these things don't happen. And yet when these videos are shown, they have a literal physical impact on, on people's bodies. And we need to grapple with that. Uh, to, to Pastor Harris's point, I agree. I, I do think we started to see white people on a larger scale than we have, certainly in my lifetime, begin to take some responsibility. 
uh, begin to understand that the, the problem of racism is not a problem that's over there. This is our problem, and we need to begin taking responsibility for it. I think that's absolutely right. You've touched on a lot of great points that we're going to talk about. But I first want to talk about your book, David. You wrote a book, Rediscipling the White Church. Can you tell us briefly what, what that is about? Yeah, I mean, I, I hinted at it just a second ago. The The idea here is that uh, before white people, and I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, so that's who I'm thinking about, before white Christians and white churches begin pursuing racial diversity in their congregations, in their neighborhoods, in their communities, they need to first ask some hard questions about why we've been content with our segregation for so long, why we've been content with our complicity with racial injustice and systems of white supremacy for so long. Uh, we can't simply add a little bit of racial or ethnic diversity to the status quo and assume that we're actually doing something. We're simply putting a veneer over these systems of white supremacy. And so my call in the book is that white Christians in particular would be reflective and ask some difficult questions and begin doing some of our own internal work within our own uh, communities, particularly those who are located in majority white spaces. And then we're in a position to be much more hospitable to uh, a greater diversity of, uh, again, as a Christian, uh, sisters and brothers who share our faith, uh, but not our race. I think that's so true. And I think one thing you said about witnessing uh, the police brutality, it, it's been around forever. Now, but now, now there are cameras. Now there's witness to it, which really is a call. Um, I think Pastor Harris said this before about um, you can't say that you didn't know. You can't say that you that you weren't aware. Uh, and I think when it comes to religion, all three of you are pastors. What role does religion have um, when it comes to racial injustice? Can you be racist and, and religious at the same time? I mean, the answer is yes, yeah, obviously. Right. There's, there's, we have hundreds of years of evidence yep. that this is not a problem. Yep. Uh, and I'll just say very briefly before handing it off to my colleagues that um, that when you uh, when you understand the history of the development of race, you have to reckon with the the, the complicity of European and then white American Christians, that the birth of race is rooted in some ways in some very warped uh, uh, and heretical theology. And so there is, again, that responsibility uh, for those of us who are Christians and, and those of us uh, in the cultural majority in particular to take that responsibility, to understand that history and to begin disentangling ourselves mm -hmm. from that. Yeah, I, I would also add uh, to David that there is this notion of assimilationist behavior. And I think uh, the black church uh, at some level has been involved in assimilationist behavior. Uh, and I do agree with David that you can be racist and religious, but I think sometimes what's missing in the context of the black church is uh, uh, the prophetic over the piety. We're so concerned with how we worship and we're so concerned about uh, an individual an individualistic approach to our relationship with the divine, that we forget that there is a prophetic word that has to go forth, prophetic word that uh, goes forth to empower people to change systems and dynamics, and not necessarily to assimilate into a culture that has been uh, brought about by colonizers. And I, so I think until some black churches get back to that, we'll continue to have problems even within the black race of seeing and don't sing. So because there's colorism and racism even embodied uh, within the black community. So I think until we all kind of step back and with our white brothers and sisters, if 
uh, we do the work and together, but not impose upon people who are the marginalized and who are the put upon and who are the oppressed to help teach you. I think that's another piece that has become more wearing on the black community, especially uh, since black churches have been the safe haven for the black community. Let me just add, my opinion is yes, you can be religious and racist. Uh, think about it, the KKK considers themselves a religious organization. Mm -hmm. Come on, think about it, the evangelical church. I just wanna go ahead and call it out because I've never seen such a divide in the body of Christ when it comes to racist issues, right? This administration has absolutely exacerbated that. 2020, which is what I call the new cuss word, right? You don't have to cuss, just say, I don't give a 2020. It'll, <laughs> everybody understands, it's been rough this year. And so this year has shown so much. And the last thing that I'll say, is it not sad, a sad commentary that the most segregated time of the week is every Sunday morning? Black wow. folks worshiping with black folks, white folks only worshiping with white folks, Asian folks only, it, just think about it, the great divide in the body of Christ. So can you be religious and racist? Certainly, but can we adequately, biblically, and correctly represent Christ and be racist? Absolutely not. Mm. Dana, can I ask my colleague, uh, Pastor Chris, a little sure. bit about what, what he just said? Yeah. Help me help me understand, may I, Dana, before I run roughshod over you, here? You go right ahead. There, at least from the Black church perspective, there's been consolation found in being in that sacred space together. So how does one deal with a racist America and not be able to come together in a place and space where they find solace and comfort during the most difficult times. And I'm not saying that you're saying, you know, cast it aside, but, but it, you know, if we think about uh, churches that look like the world we live in, um, that may be hard to do when I am working with white people all week. I'm working with people who oppress me all week. Now I got to go to church with them. Uh, where do I find that comfort and that uh, that uh, revitalization, that rejuvenation that I need to go out and fight another day? It's going to be those same exact people seem like they're going to have the same problem when they get to heaven because there's no black section in heaven. There's no white section in heaven. And until we all come into the unity of the faith, until the body of Christ is not one color, not one race, not one ethnicity. And then beyond that, I'm not really sure there's consolation in that. It sounds to me like it's isolation and segregation and limitation. Because at the end of the day, I believe that there are so many people given the opportunity, right, to worship with others that don't look like them and don't live like them, they would do it. And then there have been enough church fights in all black churches to let you know has nothing to do with race, mm -hmm. right? And there's been tremendous division in white churches, has nothing to do with race, that's humanity. And I think we have to make sure that we get to the place where we don't make Jesus a black savior, a white savior. He's the savior, he's all of our savior. And I think we have to be very careful that we in the body of Christ don't represent the same race, racism that we call ourselves hating. We're gonna take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. So how's saving for the renovation going? All done. I will never understand how you do it. Easy, she saves with BMO Harris. We give you a cash reward for every month you save. So BMO will give me cash for saving money? You bet. Can the subject hold position two, please? How's this? That's art. I make saving look good. 
when a bank helps you make real financial progress. That's the BMO effect. Get a $5 reward every month you save $200 or more in a new BMO Statement Savings Account. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana, where we are talking about racial tensions and Black Lives Matter. Pastor David Swanson, in your book, uh, Rediscipling the White Church, the subtitle is From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. In what ways have diversity efforts been cheap? Yeah, I think when I think about a corporate uh, context, email statements to employees, uh, press releases, um, um, general meetings with employees to give a patronizing and comforting speech to say, we understand how you feel. But where the rubber meets the road is where we're placing our resources. Are we placing our resources in a strategy around racial equity, which means uh, in some cases we have to think about who our suppliers are. We have to think about our policies and we have to think about how we recruit. We have to think about who our funders are. We have to think holistically about how we go to market, uh, who our customers are, and then to be able to bravely take the stance that we want to be anti-racist or that uh, this notion of racism is not something that we align with. And so it's cheap when we just continue to have these, these statements because the statements stand on their own as just words on a piece of paper. What employees are looking for are actionable items that are backed with financial resources and other resources to move the needle on a strategy. I agree with that. And also taking the action when racism occurs, when it's witnessed um, and not being complacent, being part of the solution. What else? You know, a lot of people are just given platitudes, right? It's just kind of the right thing to say right now, kind of the right thing to focus on right now. But when you say Black Lives Matter, Black talent matters, Black leadership matters, Black positioning matters, and I think Black investment matters as well. Uh, you want to, in the corporate world, you want to impress me, don't have another lunch and learn. Put Black people in the C-suite. Make them the leaders of the organization. Don't just give them a job, right? Make them leaders in the company. Put them on the boards, right? Talk is cheap. And at this point, we've heard a lot of talking. Now it's time for people to really do what they say they really mean when they say Black Lives Matter. It's action, not words. I think that a lot of uh, diversity efforts in majority white organizations, be the, those organizations churches, nonprofits, uh, or corporate America, are actually just marketing ploys. Uh, it's no longer appropriate in this country to be all white, majority white, to only have white faces in your advertisements or at your at your boardroom tables. And so I, I, this is what I would call cheap diversity. It is diversity for the sake of advancing uh -huh. your own reputation rather than actually making a material difference in individual and communities' lives. So I, I think any organization that actually cares about racial justice is going to have to come up with some metrics. They're going to have to be able to describe how what they are doing is not just making themselves feel better, but is actually making a measurable difference uh, in the lives of those who have been most impacted by racism in this country. I heard of a of a, a pretty large white church recently that is doing a strategy to reinvest in black owned banks in this country. Mm -hmm. This majority white church is encouraging its members to invest their savings in black owned banks in this country. Now, I love that idea because it's not about the church's reputation. It's about actually in a financial monetary way, uh, making a difference in, in banks, which are then going to give loans and be invested in majority black communities. 
You know, when George Floyd died and there was so many marches and demonstrations and even riots, one thing that came up in, in my world were people not fully appreciating until now the trauma involved in witnessing police brutality and what that means, what that looks like. People who have never seen um, uh, death at the hands of police or even during the civil rights movement, et cetera, um, do people underestimate what the trauma looks like in, in witnessing that um, and, and its impact on the people who, who live in those neighborhoods, who have those family members, um, and even if it's not brutality that ends in death, right? A lot of times there are serious grave injuries that happen, both emotional and physical. Um, so can, can we talk about, about some of that? Yeah, trauma is one of my um, passions. And I want to say the answer is yes. Uh, the lived experience of Black people, let's just think about it. You know, uh, only Black people are asked to, you know, live and deal with a pandemic called COVID, another pandemic called systemic racism, another pandemic called violence, and so many other things that you can put on there at the same exact time. And what I would want people to do is to learn about the lived experience of Black people. A couple of resources. Uh, read a book by Dr. Joy DeGroote called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, which talks about the trauma that we now feel that our great great grandparents had and what they experienced. Another book uh, that they could read, Cast, by Isabel Wilkerson. And I think that when people start to inform themselves, then it shifts the paradigm of their thinking. And, and one of the things that we've been telling people over and over again, uh, um, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when you know better, you ought to be doing better. And I'm finding a lot of folks that are saying, give me the lived experience, tell me what's going on so I can understand your community. But then the question I'm asking them, after you understand it, what are you gonna do with that understanding? In a, in a corporate context, in a nonprofit, I've been taking uh, colleagues through the work of Dr. Uh, Ibram Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And part of the discussion brings up the trauma of black and brown people at the hands of white people. And I, and I would also argue that in addition to doing that reading that informs uh, of a historical context, and Kendi uh, uh, lays out well how he also saw himself you know, in this racist context, because the question was asked earlier, can you be a racist and religious? And argue, arguably, uh, yes. But I think the other piece is when, when, when having these conversations that uh, we must be mindful that they are going to be difficult. You, you cannot imagine how many times I've had conversations and uh, with, with our white brothers and sisters, and uh, I say something, for example, like, yes, in this part of our organization, it looks like the, you know, the, the field, and over here, it looks like, you know, the big house. And, and, and they took offense to that. But to, to, to uh, Pastor Chris's point, you don't understand the lived experience of black people. If you don't live the, understand the lived experience of black people, then here I am yet again, having to feel some kind of way from my experience because you're uncomfortable with it. So uh, I would argue as they read, they have to sit with themselves and be able to sit with the discomfort or we won't be able to move from this cheap uh, diversity uh, to this cheap solidarity as, as David talks about. What do you think are gonna be some of our greatest challenges as we move forward? in trying to heal our nation and our world? 
I mean, just to stick on this theme of trauma for a second, there's there's a, a way in which white people have been traumatized as well. And I, I say that very delicately because this is this is, uh, you know, this is not in any way to make a, a comparison. But you cannot be on the giving end of violence for generation after generation after generation and not be impacted by it. Uh, there's a book called uh, My Grandmother's Hands, uh, which I'd highly recommend. And the author talks about uh uh, uh, generations of trauma and how that impacts white people. And there's some deep healing that needs to rehumanize us so that the dynamic that Dr. Parker just described is no longer happening. So that instead we're leading with empathy, we're leading with compassion, we're leading with trust. We are believing you when you describe your lived experience instead of getting defensive or deflective, right? Or retreating in shame. We're able to remain present and hear that story, be impacted by it, and then uh, actually do something something about it. Moving from apathy to action has been a big deal. Um, when I've had my friends to uh, watch the documentary called 13th, where they read uh, Michelle uh, McKinney Alexander's book called uh, The New Jim Crow. Uh, when they read uh, Michelle Alexander's book, they come back and say, Chris, I didn't know. Now I want to be involved. And so um, Pastor David uh, and so many other pastors, we led marches in 2020 after George Floyd. You know, in Bronzeville, the black metropolis, we, we get, did the clarion call and in 48 hours, more than 10,000 Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Baha'i, Catholic, Latinx people showed up and marched with us on Dr. King Drive. And then on Juneteenth, we led our second one and 5,000 came and marched with us. And thousands of people saying, we want to move from apathy to action. And we've seen that work. But that is when people, watch this, get involved with their heart not just their head, it, it moves them to a whole nother level. So it sounds like there is a lot of work to do. What are the ways, both in big and small, that, that we can do, that you advise your community, your, your congregations to do to solve the race problem or to contribute um, to healing our country in, in big and in small ways? You know, one of the things that I've been recently involved in is racial healing circles. And Racial Healing Circles brings uh, collective groups of people together to have uh, curated conversations with one another about difficult, uh, difficult topics around race. When we can sit with one another and have these constructive healing circle conversations, I think it lends itself to understanding one another and uh, beginning to kind of uh, that point of departure being a mutual respect or at least trying to get to a place of mutual understanding. And so in doing these racial healing circles, uh, uh, I, I found that there has been tremendous growth, personal growth, that people have, and with that personal reflection, that personal growth, then they're able to set out to, to do some type of change that is meaningful. I'll mention two things briefly. One, again, I'm a Christian and a pastor, and so I'm gonna say this is deeply spiritual work. And even if you don't share my faith, it is still deeply spiritual work. It is not simply about head knowledge. You have to be willing to be transformed from the inside out. Uh, the second thing I would say is history is everything. And when we don't know our history, we're going to repeat it. And that's what this country has been doing for literally hundreds of years. So we need to understand our nation's history. We need to understand our own family's history in as much as we are able to do so. Uh, we, we need to 
understand the history of the communities in which we find ourselves. For many of us who are white, we look around our communities and we say, well, it's just this is just how it's always been. This is just a, a natural accident of personal or cultural preference, but that's not true. There's a history behind it that has segregated us, that has divided us, that has enacted racially oppressive policies on certain people. And once we understand that, now we have to be involved because otherwise we're going to be complicit in the perpetuation of injustice. Thank you, Pastor David. Thank you, Pastor Chris. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Valerie. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. In Naperville, we know that community counts. In fact, it's in our name. As Naperville Community Television, we have the privilege of showcasing what makes this award-winning city a wonderful place to raise a family, to make a living, and to enjoy life's journey. That's why it's our mission to capture on camera those special moments that connect us, those stories that impact our lives, stories you won't see anywhere else. So watch Naperville Community Television on air, online, and on social media. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana. The topic of Black Lives Matter and where we go from here is such a personal conversation. And so joining me for this next segment are my own kids, Trey and Lena Davenport. Thank you both so much for joining me. Um, I wanna talk about some of the conversations that we've had in our own home about George Floyd. So who was George Floyd? Uh, he got killed by a policeman. He got killed by a policeman, that's right. The man put his knee on George Floyd's neck. And when we talked about that, how did that make you feel? Mm. It made me feel that I couldn't trust police officers anymore. Yeah. We went to visit the site where he died, right? Yeah. Remember we went to Minneapolis? What was that like? Because a lot of people haven't, haven't actually been to the site where George Floyd was killed. What did you, what do you remember seeing and how did that, what did, what did, how did that make you I feel? I saw a lot of flowers and candles and a bunch of stuff there from a lot of people. Yep. What did you see, Trey, when we were there? A hand and a flag. A flag, right? People were crying. People were praying. People were hugging. It was hot because we went in the summer. Yeah. What does Black Lives Matter mean? It that? means that our lives matter. Not, it's not like somebody else's lives matter more than the other. And, it, and I'm not saying that our lives matter more than them, because all of our lives matter the same. Oh, that's my girl. That's my girl. What do you think we can do to make this world a better place? By making friends. Making friends? Uh, by being nice to each other. By being nice to each other. That's a good one. I'm not just a talk show host. I'm not just a lawyer. But I am a black woman 
I am a daughter, I am a mother, and I'm a mother to black children. I say these things because I want you to see me. If you see me, then you also see my children. I want you to see that we all have more in common with those who do not look like us than we think. And I'd like for us all to be part of the solution of how we make this world a better place. There is so much work to be done, but I believe that we can do it. Together, we can influence the next generation, just as they have already influenced us through Black Lives Matter and more. Thank you to all of my guests for joining me for such an important discussion that impacts us all. Let's keep having courageous conversations, compassion, and understanding. It is only through spreading love and not hate that we can effectuate meaningful change. Special thanks to BMO Harris. Hopefully you have been entertained, if not encouraged or inspired. I do not promise to be an expert, nor do I have all the answers. I'm just Dana. Being Dana. See you next time. This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you by BMO Harris Bank.